The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. As the world has changed dramatically in recent weeks, our jobs have changed too. If you're looking to explore the science of making work not suck in these trying times, you should check out Work Life with Adam Grant, a podcast from TED. This season, you'll learn how small wins can help you fight burnout, how you don't have to fight loneliness at work alone, and why Momofuku restaurateur David Chang thinks job interviews are broken. Listen to Work Life with Adam Grant wherever you get your podcasts. From the editorial team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel. And this is Hello Monday, our show about the changing nature of work and how that work is changing us. Over at Hello Monday headquarters, which, let's be honest, these days is slack, we were really excited to sit down for a talk with Guy Raz. Podcasting is still early. I sometimes have to tell people where they can find our show on their phones. But the field already has its megastars. Guy is one of them. He launched one of the most popular podcasts in existence, How I Built This. It's about to become a book. He also has a kid's show called Wow in the World, and he has a new show on Luminary, Wisdom from the Top. Guy's an expert now on learning and leadership. He's built this expertise through interviewing, sharp interviewing. How I Built This in particular is a show about things that work. But the show works so well because Guy coaxes his guests into sharing honestly about the things that don't work, their failures. It's pretty amazing. Here's Guy Raz. I think that success is really boring. And I think that success isn't particularly instructive. And I don't think that we learn a a whole lot about who you are if we just know about your successes. When you're successful, it's really easy to talk about yourself. It's really, it's not a challenge. For me, what makes a person interesting is when they're contextualized. You know, all of the good and the bad and the complex. You know, even Mr. Rogers, who was pretty close to being a saint. You know, if you contextualized him, he probably had moments where he was like, ah, I'm tearing my hair out, you know? I don't want anybody who comes on the show to be, um, to be like, you know, an Instagram version of themselves. I, they, they have to be a full human, a full 360 human. Otherwise, it's not real, you know? And, and so I am really, really interested in failure because to me, it's how you respond to failure that gives us the tools to think about how we are going to respond to failure because we will all fail multiple times in our lives, sometimes multiple times in a day. <laughs> and so that's why I'm so interested in failure. It's It's... It's the essence of what it means to to build anything. I love that you say that, Guy. And I've been a journalist for a couple of decades, um, as have you. And I've come up covering Silicon Valley. And in Silicon Valley, failure is this badge of honor. Everybody likes to say that failure is important. And then you sit with them and you ask them about that failure. And they say, oh, but I don't really want to talk about it. It's too painful. It didn't happen. I don't want to talk about it. So how do you create an environment that is safe enough for people to feel like they can? Because that that is something that you are able to do. Well, to your point, which is such an important point, there's also a fetishization of failure in Silicon Valley. The problem with that is that it's often people who have 
the um, financial wherewithal to take huge risks and fail and then talk about their failure, but be okay. If you are somebody who has nothing or close to nothing and you put it all on the line, failure could be catastrophic. Failure is not this like fun little Silicon Valley hack to make you into a better person. You know, it's it's your life. Um, And so I think we have to be really careful in how we define failure because, of course, I talk to everybody who comes on the show before they come on, where I basically say the following. I say, look, the show is a biographical journey into your life. It's an oral history. It's an oral history from your perspective. So we're not going to get the whole story, but we do a lot of research. I do a lot of reading about you. I will know more about you probably than you know about yourself by the time we get to the studio. But here's the deal. We don't want to force you to come onto the show, which means that there's no conditions. We want to agree to not ask certain questions because you have to be open to answering anything unless it's irrelevant to the business. But I'm going to ask you everything about the company, about your life, about the story, about your fears, about your parents, about the moments where you, when you were on the bathroom floor. And the reason why I want to do that, I need to do that, is because the very fact that we asked you to come on the show it implicitly means that you've succeeded. We know that. Everybody who sees your name on the podcast, you knows that. But we really want to find out how you got there because there was a point in your life where nobody would take your call. Like no one knew who you were. And so that's that's sort of how I how I approach it, because I want people to understand that, like to, to millions of people who look look to them um, as a as an example, a model, they are um, they're like a superhero. And what I'm trying to do is to say, no, you're not a superhero. You are just like everyone listening. But you got lucky and you made some really smart strategic decisions and you hustled and you did certain things. And that's what people want to know. They want to know what you did. So. You mentioned luck. You mentioned hustle. What makes a company work? Well, what makes a company work is is really complicated. And I think um, and I'm sure, you, you know, in, in your reporting experience, you've seen different things at work at different companies. You know, I think there was a model. There was a, a really clear model of what it meant to be a good leader um, in the 90s. And that model is very different from the model today. You know, back then it was like Jack Welch. It was hard charging. Return to share, you know, return cash to shareholders. It was, you know, up or out, um, a lot of yelling. It was very male dominated. Today, that model is really not how leaders operate. Um, Companies focus on culture, they focus on respect. Um, Increasingly, and I'm really encouraged by this, good companies incentivize collaboration. For, for, For time immemorial, certainly in like the post war era, most companies rewarded individual achievement. So if you were in sales and you hit your sales targets, you you got rewarded. And by and large, that is still how it works today. The, the problem with that system is that it sets everybody in the company up against each other. And and really smart companies, and, and I think a lot of companies in Silicon Valley are on the leading edge here, they encourage collaboration. And, they, and, and they've kind of started to create metrics to reward collaboration, which is harder. You know, you can't, um, you can look at at at, at a PNL and you can say, okay, well, we see how this person and that person f- functioned and performed. But let's say your sales weren't as good as the person next to you, but you actually mentored ten people, or you really helped to to encourage a a, a strong, warm, kind culture in your division. How do you measure that? Because that is as valuable, and in some cases, way more valuable than just a really good sales rep. 
wisdom from the top guy, that really is looking at some of the same questions that you've always been looking at, which is yeah. how do you how do you build something successfully? But looking at not starting from square one and building something fresh in the world, but actually trying to advance a product or a service and thus an idea inside of a large organization, which in many ways is a far more challenging prospect. A thousand percent. It is so it's I mean, the thing about how I built this is and I I speak to a lot of big companies like I'll go to Procter & Gamble or General Mills and and um, it's amazing because these are huge companies that have so much um, so many resources and such a talented workforce. And then you look at like I don't know, Method, right? Like Method was built by two guys in a group house in San Francisco in the 90s. You know, one was like working at advertising, one was an environmental engineer, and they mixed like glycerin and vinegar and soap. Like things that I do, I actually, now that we're in quarantine, I'm making, my wife and I are making our own like hand salves and it's fun, you know, but like these guys were doing it in their group house in San Francisco in the 90s And they created a method. Like, how did that come out of a group house in San Francisco and not out of Unilever or out of, you know, um, SC Johnson or or one of these big companies, right? Um, Why did, you know, um, Airbnb come out of an apartment in San Francisco instead of out of Marriott or, or Hyatt or Hilton, you know? So these are big questions. And it's not because companies lack the intelligence or the resources. No, there's just no question they don't. I mean, the smartest people are working inside big companies. I think the challenge in big companies is there's less of a willingness to fail, yeah. to um, to take risks that actually won't work for a variety of reasons. In fact, big companies in so many ways have the most opportunities to try and fail, you know, and, and even to launch products and then watch them fail and then circle back or try and, and and revive them or try try and rework them. I mean, so much time and effort goes into into um, coming up with a perfect product launch and so many hands are on it that it's sometimes very hard for companies to encourage internal entrepreneurship, right? People call it intrapreneurialism. Um, and I think the key to kind of building that culture is uh, to adopt some of the methods that, that you know, to, to young women in a, in a garage come up, you know, that th- the process that they're kind of working through to build their own little startup. It's, it's to give people space to fail and to actually make sure that the people at the very bottom of your team are listened to. So as you were saying that, I was... I was I was experiencing this huge disconnect and I was trying to figure out what like what am I not connecting to and then I realized you are approaching this question um, from a leadership perspective how should how should the people at the top think about this and I was approaching that question as a person who works inside a large company yeah. how do you know if you've arrived inside a company where you can advance an idea and then how do you do it I go back to a little bit of what I said earlier, but it requires strong leadership and not just from the top, but at all levels. Leaders in companies who are willing and able to take risks and to give the people who work in their divisions or teams the space to try things and to lead. The other side of this is that, you know, leadership and, and I, I'm, I'm going to quote my friend Simon Sinek, who um, I've known, by the way, since we were teenagers. And uh, he's just such a smart guy, and I, I love everything he writes. I love his books. Um, and I, I saw him speak in San Francisco in early early part of this year, and he was asked a question by somebody who was like, you know, I 
I'm I'm not a leader. I don't I'm I work in a team, but the, our team leader sucks. Like he, he's really hard, and no one likes him. And and the, the answer Simon gave was so smart. What basically what he said was, look, having authority that is a title, right? That that gives you signing authority or budgetary authority. But being a leader doesn't require having a title. He began to give certain examples of how you can be a leader at any level in your in your group. I mean, I'll give you an example from our team on how I built this. We have a team of about 15 people who are involved with how I built this and our live shows and all of the different things we do. About nine out of the 15 people on our team were former interns on our team. Every single person on our team is a leader, and we expect that person to be a leader. How do they do it? Well, right now on how I built this, the person who is booking guests and producing our live Facebook video conversations we're doing was an intern for us four months ago. Well, our intern is now being mentored by her. Mm-hmm. Our former intern is now a you know a junior, junior producer, is being mentored by and has been mentored by producers who are just two or three years ahead of her, who are showing her the, you know, the audio process. When it comes time for her to like confide in somebody or ask somebody for advice or complain or whatever it is, she's not going to come to me. She's going to go to the person on her team who is acting like a leader. And I think that being that kind of leader is something that anybody can do. I mean, with respect to like coming into a company and saying, I have this amazing idea and I need the time and space to do it. Companies have to be willing to allow for that kind of innovative thinking. And I think smart companies want to do that, need to do that, because they, they're competing for the top talent. And to retain top talent, people need to feel like they are listened to, heard, and that their ideas are respected and taken seriously. In order for that to work on your team, you need to trust that process to work. And so it seems to me that like one core, the fundamental piece of good leadership is trusting other people. Um, have you seen places over the course of, of your reporting where that has been the factor that has helped the company grow? I mean, I think that's the factor that's a, like the key factor that helps almost any company grow, which is when people are given, you know, specific um, sort of a limited tasks, it's one thing, but when people are are kind of told to just make decisions and own it, that's another thing. We did a recent story about Sweetgreen. I mean, they need people in their company to come up with incredible innovative ideas. Like they're, you know, obviously now in the, in the midst of, of COVID-19, they are having to pivot and really rethink how they're going to deliver their food and, and, and supply chains. But some of the coolest ideas that have come out of Sweetgreen in the last couple of years have come from, you know, innovations within. They're really pivoting towards becoming, you know, not a salad restaurant, but uh, but a, 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 a sort of more like a food delivery company, right? Where in the future, you're not going to go to a sweet green necessarily, but you're just going to order something or they're going to know what you want want to have because it's going to be like Spotify and you're going to go to the, the cooled locker, you know, downstairs in your building and, and there's your salad. So a lot of those kinds of innovations that, you know, you see at a place like sweet green come from that model of trusting people to make to make decisions and and also if they fail and and the decision isn't good to owning that failure. Well, you know, the sweet green model, it is a great example of an evolution that comes out of economic hardship. 
And here we are in this moment, and we, we really are in the middle of it as we record, Guy. I mean, we've, we're six weeks now uh, after the country, the U.S., just closed down. And we don't know what the path forward for business is going to be like. But it reminds me of what it was like to be a business reporter in 2008 and 2009. Mm. And during that period of time, some of the most interesting startups that I covered were born. And I'm curious what your perspective is on the way that moments like this um, can spur innovation. One of the best examples is Shopify. We had Toby Ludkey on um, on how I built this last year. Mm-hmm. And Shopify was kind of a backwater e-commerce site um, that had, you know, couple thousand customers and then the financial crisis hits and toby is he's really worried he's based in ottawa Uh, at that point they hadn't um had any major outside funding they'd really just been funded by family and friends um and he's thinking okay we're gonna go under you know the whole global economy is collapsing well the exact opposite happens because in 2008 as people start to lose their jobs uh, many many people are are starting to think well I don't have a job. Um, maybe I can open up my own store. Maybe I can open up an Etsy shop. Maybe I can, you know, um, sell these things I'm making. And and actually, the number of people who signed up for Shopify skyrocketed. I mean, it completely transformed their business. And we're seeing some of that now. With with I just did an interview with the founder of Duolingo, Louis uh, Louis Van On. I mean, they're in, they're up a hundred percent, hundred eight percent. Slack. Zoom. Some of these companies are, um, you know, kind of transforming overnight. Um, at the same time, you're seeing some well-known brands um, really suffering, right? I mean, uh, right. away suitcases, for example. Airbnb. Airbnb is a great example, right? Um, and I think what what we're going to see is um, leaders, not just founders of existing companies, but people who are kind of looking to start something, how they're thinking about this moment and trying to adapt to the moment, right? I mean, see, it sounds obvious. It seems obvious, but it's really hard. It's really, really challenging. And a lot of it is, you know, you can't necessarily anticipate. You know, Toby thought that Shopify was going to go under. All of a sudden, he's looking at the at the traffic to the site and it's skyrocketing, you know. But it, it was the right moment. I mean, that was the moment that that the world wanted Shopify. They didn't want it in 2004, 2005. This is going to be the most challenging moment for any business leader, any founder, any startup. There's never been anything like this. But on the other hand, um, it's going to create some opportunities that we we just can't even begin to imagine. You know, for example, think about your relationship to home. I mean, how how many of us have spent so much time, concentrated time in our homes? Most of us get up in the morning, we have a cup of coffee, and we are out of the house. And then we come back at night, and we have a quick dinner, and we watch TV and go to sleep. We don't spend – like, I think a lot of people are discovering parts of their homes or apartments. They're discovering their appliances. They're discovering the, the food in their refrigerator. I feel like that has followed – three distinct segments so far for me, that relationship with home. And it's something that I'm, I'm hearing from a lot of people as well. There was that first window of time, week, two weeks, where everyone was just so overwhelmed. And people were like, how the heck? Yeah. How the heck are we supposed to do this? Yeah. And then there was this period of time where people kind of 
figured out a new rhythm and maybe they were happy with it and maybe they were, you figured it out. Yeah. But now we're opening into this new period of time. And the most interesting thing I hear from people is um, when they say about any aspect of their former life, oh, I can't go back to that. I, I can't go back to eating that way or I can't go back to being in an office for nine hours at a time because every I can't go back to that is an opportunity for something new to exist. I, I, a thousand percent, right? Like think about how many people now around the country who are lucky enough and privileged enough to work from home are asking themselves, why am I commuting 45 minutes to an hour a day? Or asking themselves, why do I live in such an expensive city when I can do this clearly from anywhere else? Why do I need to live in, in San Francisco, right? I think companies like WeWork are going to have a – I mean, they already had huge challenges. They're going to have enormous challenges after this because people are going to, are going to start to – to have these conversations. Do I need to be there every day? Can we replicate things via Zoom? I mean, I think companies that spend a lot of money on marketing and on team building exercises, which are important, um, and on bringing teams together for, you know, retreats, are going to start to say, well, maybe we do, you know, three retreats a year via Zoom, but we only do one in person. That's really where the opportunities are going to be. I mean, Part of me is sort of I hesitate to, to, to sort of push this too hard because I'm a big believer in human connection, you know, and I, I think most of us are. We need it. I mean, it's a cliche, right? Humans are social animals, right? Blah, blah, blah. Um, we all need that that human to human connection. It's true that, that when people are in the same room, there's an energy, you know, an, an energy that we know exists. But um, can we get pretty close to that um, through video conferences as a you know, as a substitute for that sometimes? I think the answer is probably yes. I think we're figuring that out. And we're also on the cusp of all kinds of new technologies that could take us closer there and may now be sped along, right? Like exactly. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. Guys learn so much about how other people start new things. But of course, he's an entrepreneur too. He left radio for podcasting before that was even a thing that people did. 
and he eventually built his own show, and then many shows. So I asked him to tell me about how he got started with podcasting. Well, that really was the result of a failure. Um, I mean, my whole career, I, I loved being a reporter. I loved it so much. I started out um, as an intern at NPR in the late 90s, and all I wanted to do was be a reporter. And I, the thing I loved about being a reporter was that it gave me, a, gave me cover to talk to anyone because I'm, I'm naturally introverted and I'm very shy, and I have a hard time just walking up to somebody and saying, hi, I'm Guy Raz. I, it's just I don't have that personality, and I've always admired people like that who can just talk to anyone. And I'm, I just have, I have a lot of like self-conscious kind of energy, but for some reason, having a notepad in my hand gave me this like ability to talk to anybody. I felt like I could just go up to somebody because I had a notepad, and I could say, "Hey, I'm telling a story." And and so, early on, you know, writing for the Washington City paper or you know seeing my name in print in in a in somewhere that would pay me twenty five bucks was just so thrilling. It was so amazing to, and and so for me, like my whole career, I thought, you know, um, I want to do this. I want to do that. I want to be a foreign correspondent. I was, I I covered, I covered wars. I, I, I mean, it was like a totally different world. I was overseas for six years in Iraq and Afghanistan and, and Jerusalem. And, um, I came back to Washington and, um, and I became a host on NPR and all, on all things considered the weekend host, Mm -hmm. but my, my thought was that, you know, I really should be the weekday host. Like that was the important job. And that was sort of the brass ring I was kind of, you know, going for because I thought that that was that was the important job with respect and all these things. And um, and when it was time, when there was a slot opened, um, I didn't get it. I, I wasn't selected for it. Um, you know, I, I, I worked on weekend, all things considered for three years, three and a half years. And I really poured every single part of myself into that show. And when I didn't get it, it was really crushing because I thought, well, maybe, you know, it kind of forces you to, to sort of sit back and say, well, maybe I do suck. You know, yeah. maybe um, like if, if these people who are making are making decisions about what sounds good on the radio don't want me, well, maybe I suck. And maybe I should like look for something else. And I really did. This is about 2011. I really did start to think, okay, I've got to find a different line of work. And... Um, Guy, I just want to pause right there a second. Um, First of all, to acknowledge the amazing contributions that you made to that show. I mean, you introduced some really, and I I was a listener at the time. Oh, my God. Uh, Thank you. Wasn't the writing contest you? Yes, three-minute fiction. It was amazing. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I love that. But you don't need me to tell you (laughs) that you were, in fact, good at this. Um, and, And that speaks to something that I think we can't say often enough, which is that too often, you know, we're going along in our careers and we land inside an institution, maybe one that we respect and maybe one whose values are pretty closely aligned with our own. Yeah. And before we even really think about it, we look up and we realize we've made that institution's objectives our own without really thinking about what our own paths and passions are and where our own success is. Yeah. I think that's where that feeling, it just resonates so much. Like maybe I suck. Maybe it comes from that. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I think that's also familiarity. You know, when you're working somewhere, I mean, there are people at NPR who've known me since I was 21, 22 years old, you know. I'm 45 now. So it's also different. You know, um, I was looking for 
something else, anything really. Um, and I was also really frustrated with the news. I, I was already at that point in 2012, there was already a lot of polarization. I was just tired of it. I didn't, I got into news to like, because I thought I want to make a contribution to the world in some way to make the world a better place. And I didn't feel like I was doing that. Um, and around that time, Ted came to NPR and they said, we want to collaborate. And I heard about this and I found the people who were sort of trying to figure this out. I applied for that job and there was a process and there were a bunch of applicants. And I, I got the job as Ted Radio Hour host in uh, 2012. And the crazy thing about it was when I left All Things Considered, when I left the news side of NPR, I literally got emails from some of the most respected, brilliant journalists at NPR who were like, what are you doing? Like, why are you leaving the news division to do a what? A podcast? And why would somebody listen to a show about one theme, about one, the same thing for an hour? We came up with this concept, which became Ted Radio Hour. And, um, and you know, the first year was kind of quiet. I mean, it was a podcast. and But then, man, when Serial launched, when that show launched, it, like, changed everything. Every boat out, out there, like, rose with that tide, including Ted Radio Hour. And all of a sudden, to lots of people, I became a podcaster. Like, I, I always thought of myself as a radio journalist or, like, a radio host. And I would get people saying, I love your podcast. And it took me a couple of years to, to kind of hear, like, not to kind of flinch when I heard that because I was like, wait, I have a radio show or I'm a, you know, but now almost everywhere I go, I'm introduced as a podcaster, which is so cool. You know, like I, um, and, and it's, it, I fell into it accidentally. Well, you say accidentally. And I just think back to 10 minutes ago when you were telling me about the Shopify guy, now he came up with this thing, but then something shifted in the culture and the economy and the world was ready for that thing. And maybe cereal was your Shopify it moment. It was. It was. That was our Shopify moment. Serial was such a big deal because it was the first podcast that was so mainstream. Like it, it was covered on Saturday Night Live and, you know, they were on the late night talk shows. Well, thank you, Guy. That's sort of a wonderful moment for us to wrap up with. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much, Jesse. That was Guy Raz. His new book, How I Built This, comes out in September. And check out his show, Wisdom from the Top, on Luminary. Guy will be with us this week for office hours. We're doing them every week now. It's just been a great way to get to know a bunch of you. You can find us on LinkedIn every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern. Follow me on LinkedIn if you want to get a reminder. Sarah and I will grab our mid-afternoon coffees, sit in our most comfortable chairs, and this week, Guy will be with us. Come ask him your own questions. Time is especially limited these days. We're trying to work, care for kids, keep it all together. And I'm just really glad you've spent some of it with us. If you like the show, we hope you do. Please rate us on Apple Podcasts. It takes two seconds and it really helps new listeners find us. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn. The show is produced by Sarah Storm with help from Madison Schaefer. Joe DeGiorgi mixed our show. Florencia Riando is head of original audio and video. Dave Pond is our technical director. Maya Mangini, Victoria Taylor, Michaela Greer, and Juliette Ferreau are leading from their living rooms right now. Our music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And you also heard music from Poddington Bear. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. See you next Monday.
Thanks for listening. I live in Oakland, California. And um, so we can grow vegetables in our little teeny backyard. And um, we so we've been growing vegetables for about a year. And so every week we can have a, like a fresh salad. And um, we kind of double down on that. Like we've, we've got a, all these seedlings all over our house growing, you know, and uh, spending so much time with my kids, you know, I mean, not just being around them, not, not, you know, they're doing their own thing or they're, they're doing the schooling or playing a lot of video games, unfortunately. Um, but it's, we're eating every meal together. It's different, like, right? Like I, I, similarly, I'm spending all this time with my child, but getting three minutes here and seven minutes there and the ability to sit next to them, I feel like I know my family better.